Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Today's guest set up his business in a tent serving burgers and chips made fresh from locally sourced produce. Tom, with his co-founder Phil, started Honest Burgers in 2011, and they now have restaurants across the UK, but remain true to their original mission, making British beef patties and their own butchery and chips that are made fresh every day from British spuds. No frozen chips. Environmentalists often turn diet into a behavioral battlefield, getting polarized around being a veggie, vegan, beef-free, pescatarian, etc. Tom and Phil at Honest are on a mission to create more honest experiences, and I'm delighted to welcome Tom to the show to talk about cooking, food miles, sustainable produce, and good old British farming. Welcome to Zero Five O, Tom, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Yeah, I want to caveat. Um, I sound a bit nasally because I've got a stinking head cold. But yeah, thanks for having me on board. So I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners, Tom, because I want to get into this whole sort of diet behavioral debate a little bit in a second. But I think it'd be really super interesting for the listeners to hear your story. They've probably been in an honest uh, burger outlet. Hear your story, how you got there with Phil and how's it going? Well, basically, Bruce, we started our business together down in Brighton. And as you said, it was out of the marquee or a tent. It was basically a glorified tent. And we had worked in the restaurant business, our, you know, sort of in quotations, our, our entire careers. It was a young career at that. We'd, we'd worked in restaurants as a kind of stepping stone, as a lot of people do, which is great for. And I was at uni. Phil was studying. Um, he was trying to be a journalist. None of us thought restaurants were what we wanted to go into. Just so happened that the right things aligned and me and Phil decided to give it a go. We felt that we were going to do something in the in the kind of outside catering sort of festival scene because that was the thing that seemed a bit more accessible to us back then in terms of you know money and investment you needed to do it. And we had five grand, which isn't much to set up anything. That was our like life savings combined, and we we bought a marquee, we bought a grill, we bought a fryer, we did burgers because we thought you know everyone loves a burger, and I happened to be making burgers as a student on barbecues on Brighton Beach. And there's a meaningful connection with burgers, and my theory is you know if you eat you eat something with your hand, you've got a, instantly a deeper connection with it. So it was either burgers or pizzas or something like that, and I know nothing about pizzas, so burgers were the one. And we went on from there, really, but we very quickly realized, actually, we were going to struggle with the festival scene because this was 12 years ago now, and people just weren't really craving good quality food at festivals. You know, you could rock up and pay nine quid for a frozen, pre-cooked, over-minced, over-seasoned burger with just a bun and some ketchup. And, you know, if you could bang out 10,000 of them in a weekend, you're absolutely laughing and, you know, you're, you're running down the queues quickly and the organizers are happy. For us, we wanted to do these big, chunky, medium or medium rare homemade burgers that were going to cost about the same, but take ages to prepare. And the business model just wasn't stacking up. And we didn't actually save any money to pay for all of the, you know, these huge pitch fees that you need to do any kind of meaningful festival. You're talking massive fees up front. So kind of quickly realized that we'd made our first big mistake because we hadn't left any capital for us to actually run a business. So we kind of plodded through job by job and we we kind of made very little money, but we kind of just scraped by. We're both working in restaurants to actually pay the bills. 
and then had a lucky break when we moved. I moved to London with my wife after meeting a guy called Dorian who'd worked in restaurants quite a bit and worked for like Strada and Bills. And he sort of thought, would you want to go into restaurants? Which Phil and I were like, that sounds pretty cushy. We thought Dor was going to basically bankroll us a restaurant, which was not the case. He came on board and very cleverly said, I'll put into the new business whatever you guys can put in, which I think he knew was the square root of F all. A used Ted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, we, we, um, we had a lot of passion we could put in, but not that much cash. So the idea was to go out to VCs or wealthy individuals that um, we might be able to put our business in front of and, and set up a, a burger brand in London. And obviously, we had GBK and their successes. Um, we had Byron had three or four sites, and they were doing you know crazy numbers, and everyone was going mad for what they were what they were um, dishing out. So we decided, you know, that was going to be the goal. And then I moved to Brixton, like I said, total fluke. We were sort of busy beavering away on a business plan, and I just had me and my wife happened to go for a walk around Brixton Market. And I just saw this place and just never seen anything like it. And we were both like, you know, like little kids basically walking around, just being like, oh my God, this place is incredible. There's all these tiny little um, units that are so much like pride and passion that you can just feel it in the air for all these people serving their their kind of craft. And, you know, there was like homemade pasta and lots of uh, like juice bars and, and lots of butchers and fishmongers down there. And everyone was just such a great vibe. And we thought this would be a great space for us to set up a restaurant and to kind of learn a few mistakes, really. We didn't think it was going to be busy. We thought we'd just open up our doors, spend very little money on it and just test the water. And then we'd open up a, a proper high street restaurant. And we just we, we managed to get a, the second to last site that they were operating for restaurants. We put in another two and a half grand in each. So we had seven and a half K between us. And we opened a restaurant that was just, you know, it was like chairs that me and my mum had bought at a car boot sale for like four quid each. Furniture that me and my stepdad had made. All the handyman DIY stuff was me, door and Phil, which is not recommended when none of us are all that handy. And we opened our doors and it was just completely bonkers. Like the people just started flocking in from all parts of Southeast London and Southwest London. And it was just, you know, day after day, just getting busier and busier and busier. And then the press started coming in and then we had Jay Rayner and then we had Marino Lachlan and then Grace Dent. And then, you know, you name it, everyone was coming down, trying our food and just giving us the most incredible write-ups. Except A.A. Gill, he absolutely hated us. But I'm told that's a blessing, actually, if A.A. Gill doesn't like you. But we had this kind of huge momentum and it was, you know, a mad time. And we were just kind of chasing our tails, really thinking, you know, how are we going to maximize this opportunity we've been given and, you know, keep up with our food production and grow our infrastructure. And um, the restaurant in Brixton is 20 square meters. There's no, the kitchen is the same size as most toilets. It's, sorry, the, the whole restaurant is the same size as most toilets. We had to really think about what kind of business we were going to grow and how we were going to grow and if we could grow it. And we did, and we, we did a pretty good job of it, I think. And we managed to invest in the right places. And now we've got a business that we've grown to 45 restaurants around the country. We've got a big infrastructure in our prep kitchen. We've got our own butchery. We actually make more from scratch now than we did even back then because of the addition of our butchery and a lot of other stuff we brought in-house. So yeah, we're trying to do things differently and um, you know work with real food, which is the, my kind of passion. Feels very much the kind of people on the upside, and I'm very much the food side. But yeah, that's us. That's honest in a kind of nutshell. 
And it really stands out that you've managed to scale so far. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible story. But, you know, when you started, you bought spuds from the shop opposite, very local. You know, you still have local beer in all in all the restaurants. I think, you know, Jay, I think it was Jay Rayner. One of the reviewers said that your chips, rosemary salted chips were like edible crystal meth. <laughs> That's good, that one. I think you still make the chips. All chips are all still made fresh. And I guess that sort of local you know minimizing food miles and that very local approach to rather than going you know we can get a really good deal on our own brand beer or beer that's you know from a big brewer you're going actually we'll go through all the hassle and the pain of sourcing it locally from local breweries and is it more complicated to run the business like that or is it actually you finding you can do it in your stride now I think we we did know like when we decided to do burgers. One of the reasons is we knew that there was great ingredients to make burgers in this country. And I'm I'm from the West Country, so my burgers that I would have at home would always be with like a decent cheddar. We'd never have American cheese ever in our house. That was like not not seen as cheese, and certainly not burger cheese. So there was this kind of like subconscious thinking that yeah, well, if we do burgers, we've got all the great ingredients in this country to make them. I don't think we really realised just how true that statement was. But, you know, now we've got our prep kitchen down in Sutton. The potatoes grown are in West Sussex, and it's just under 50 miles from where our, all of our potatoes are grown. And they're grown and stored down there on the farm, driven to us. And then we produce and send them out to the restaurants. All our beef is from Gloucestershire and the West Country. And we're even looking to go a bit more uh, in-depth on our beef supply, which I can talk to you a little bit about later. Yeah, all our cheeses are UK produced. We've got a seasonal coleslaw, which is changes three or four times a year that we've just launched this year. And that's all from UK veg as well. So it was important to us that, if you know, we've, we've got a concept that lends itself very well to this country and its climate. Let's use that. I don't think we were thinking it from a sustainability angle, to be fair. I think it just felt logical. And now it's kind of seen in a much different light uh, in, in a good way. And you've sort of solved the sustainability problem by thinking, actually, what we want is local, fresh produce without a really long supply chain. So we can look at the farmer in their eyes, or we can look at the cheese producer and say to her, this is your cheese, this is where it's coming from, or finding about a lo- you know, local interest in breweries. So you've sort of almost written your sustainability story in reverse, whereas a lot of businesses now are sort of scrabbling around trying to figure out how they can spin their sort of product and produce into a sustainability thing. So in some ways, there's sort of a visionary with it all. I haven't been called a visionary before, but yeah. <laughs> I think, I think we, we did what felt right at the time and, and it still does. And, you know, when you've got great ingredients locally, why would you, why would you not? And, you know, the local burger and local beer angle, again, there's just so many great suppliers in the country, local to our restaurants. Like, why would we not want to use them and get some interesting stuff in there? Just because we're a big business doesn't mean we have to buy all of our drinks from InBev or, you know, whoever it is. We can, we can buy from these cool young businesses because they do great things. And generally speaking, you know, the smaller the business you tend to get slightly more conscientious people running them, and you know, not all the not all the time, obviously, but sometimes you do. And we found that with with some of the businesses we've been working with, they're they're young, hungry, brilliant business people who are trying to carve something out for themselves. And sadly, a lot of the bigger businesses just completely overlook them because there might be some administrative issue, or there might be something you know, a piece of software they can't plug into, or something really media medial like that that we're more than happy to just give them a bit of advice. Bypass that. Yeah, and just just help them and show, you know, we've got our food safety team. We've also got very strict 
allergens rules and and some of these businesses we have to sort of go and help them set them these things up but that's fine that's, that's not that shouldn't be the reason you won't do something so yeah it's, it's great and it means we get to work with you know we've got 45 local burgers and all these restaurants that have got local beers as well which i think is probably about 40 odd now it means we get to work with some great people and when we have big parties and we have big get-togethers we had honest fest this summer we had the guys at wild weather come down and have their bar set up and everyone was sort of getting drunk on their beer and having good fun it's just a good vibe to get to kind of use these guys yeah brewers are always good uh, uh guests to invite to a party that's for sure but before we get on to beef i want to talk about your potatoes a little bit really and um my dad's a dairy farmer up in north yorkshire and he always also used to grow uh potatoes and we used to pick them by hand and my first business was selling um, cauliflowers that I'd grown with, along with his spuds at the end of the road to the caravanners going up the up the road. We used to call them comforts because the comfort weekend with caravan. So long, a long history of potatoes. Are you? What's the what's the latest on potatoes? Is there a sustainability secret around spuds, or are you taking a particular variety, or a partic- working with a particular grower? So probably going to end up talking about regenerative farming. Are the, are the potato farmers into regen ag yet? Not yet, no. And I've got, the farmer we use is a brilliant guy called James, and he's been farming, his family been farming his farm for four generations, I think. And they're really great family and great potato growers. They grow for a lot of the fish and chip businesses. They really kind of specialize in chips, chipping spuds. And yeah, we've grown with them for the last seven odd years and we're now a big customer that there's the sustainability angle for spuds is definitely something i want to tackle i mean there's been some good i think the eu passed the ruling a while ago that glyphosate um, isn't allowed to be used on potatoes anymore um, which is a particularly nasty um, pesticide so there's good inroads there thing for me with with um any meaningful change in potato growing is really hard to put in because of the transition. You know, if you want to go into organic farming, things like that, it can I think is it a seven year transition period to be classed as organic. And I, I know I, I have spoken to, to James about this and it's something we're looking into. Um, but as you said, prior to that, beef is where the majority of my focus has been on because it's just a bigger prize really and a, and, a, and a much bigger output for us but James is good in terms of he's very hot on his hedgerows and keeping them pretty much undisturbed so that they can be a real good habitat for all the biodiversity that kind of feeds off them and feeds off the areas of the fields and also he does plant some wild flowers on the borders of his potatoes fields as well for the insect population so he's definitely ahead of the of most potato farmers but there's room for improvement and um we will tackle that one eventually it's just um like i said beef is the the elephant in the room at the moment yeah, the big challenge on with potatoes in the south is uh, just blight, really, and you know when it gets into the potato and rots it from the in- inside out, and that's a real, a real challenge. We'll run out of time talking about potatoes. So beef, and in, you know, in the introduction, it frustrates me enormously that the environmentalists attacking each other about who's the veggie or the vegan or pescatarian when we should really be looking at the sustainability of food and where it comes from and giving people a choice to eat what they want. So talk to me about beef. Are you finding that your client base are as looking for something else or are you having to work hard? Are you having to defend the burger, the honest burger, or are you finding that the sort of uh, people are quite clued up on local produce? It's such a minefield. It really is. And it's, I think that's the biggest hurdle that we're ever going to 
try and overcome here is just quite how impossible it is for people to interpret. And, you know, even everything that's going on right now up in Glasgow, I read, I was listening to Radio 4 the other day, and apparently bamboo is is incredibly bad for the planet. And, you know, I've got so many products in my toiletry cupboard that are just praising the use of bamboo and how brilliant it is compared to this and other and then there was a whole piece on the fact that it's actually terrible for the for the environment and it's just it's really difficult and uh, you know for me as a business owner i want to do the best we can and i want to leave the planet in a better way than than, it, than we found it and i think that's what we've all got this responsibility now and we can't just bury our head in the sand and beef is a big big problem in the, in the world there's no disputing that i'd say if i was going to put a, a I guess on it, I'd probably say 98, maybe even 99% of all meat produced on this planet, probably not contributing to a positive way to the climate. And that's pretty alarming statistic for sure. But, you know, I'm thinking about all the intensive farming over here, South America, China, Americas, you know, think of all the all the poultry farms that's just, just constant. You know, you're talking about billions, billions and billions of animals just getting farmed in and out and, you know, not doing, not contributing to soil health in any way, shape or form. So there's this huge problem. And I'm, I'm you know, you, some people could see Honest Burgers as part of that problem. I would like to think we're not, and I think we're trying a damn sight harder than anyone else. And I think actually with the project we're working on at the moment is we could be part of the solution because soil health is one of the biggest factors that could help us with the growing growing climate crisis. So that's not up for debate, I don't think. And if you look at carbon sequestration, and again, there's a a bit of a minefield on this as well, because some people are very pro it, some people not. But ultimately, we all think that soil health can be very, very beneficial to sequestering more carbon on this planet. And the best way to improve soil health is to by putting back organic matter back into the soil. And organic matter is piss and shit from animals basically so the best way of doing that is ruminants grazing now cattle you know that is their purpose for being on this planet is to roam around and you know lightly plow the fields with their hoofs that's exactly what their hoofs are they literally plow up the field a little bit they piss and shit all over the the ground and when they've had a good diet their poo is a really good fertilizer and you've got all these different species of insects like worms and dung beetles and if you want to see a good poo a good poo should have lots of little holes in it so if you see a cow pat in a field and it's got lots of little holes in it, um, almost a little bit like a beehive, something like that, that's a good sign. That's a good diet and a good poo because that means that dung beetles have burrowed into it. They've pulled a little bit out and they're then burrowing that back into the soil and therefore putting the organic matter into the soil, which they're laying their eggs on it. They're producing more dung beetles and they're impre- increasing the organic matter in the soil. And it's just a beautiful kind of life cycle that, you know, Mother Nature created over the last few billion years and it works and it works perfectly especially when you've got predators chasing the ruminants and keeping them moving and moving to another area of field like you would have had obviously before we came along and and ruined it for everyone but for us to be promoting something like that um which is in itself called regenerative farming where you're putting soil health first you're reducing your inputs you're trying to maximize your outputs and you're treating every farm as a unique business you can't just say right 
this is our system. This, this sorry, this is the rule book. You you know play by the rules, and or or you're not getting this certificate. It's got to be done on a per farm basis because every farm's different. Every farm's got different topography and and different challenges to face, and you've got to treat it like that. And it sounds daunting, but it's it's not when you start slow. And for us, you know, we've got a, we're in a position now where we buy our beef from a lot of farmers because we buy a very small amount of beef um, in terms of cuts and carcass utilization we only buy two cuts what we're saying to farmers now is we're going to buy the whole carcass off them we're going to give them peace of mind that they can then farm the way we want them to we'll, we'll pay them a decent price for their beef which is really important we connect them to their food which is so important the, the amount of the biggest hurdle i've seen in my time looking into this is just how disconnected farmers are from food their farmers grow an, uh, an asset. They don't really see it as food. They very rarely get to enjoy it themselves. That's very interesting, right? So they're it's yeah, scary. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've been a bit of a rant, but That's all I, right. see, I see it all all the time. And I, you know, I go to visit these farmers, and I expect to sit down for lunch and have you know like a really great steak or something. And it's just they just don't have their own products. They never they never really see it as that. You know, they they send the, the cattle off. They go to their abattoir. They get their money. If they want to get more money, they send more cattle. The abattoirs aren't paying for the quality of the beef. They are to a degree, but not really. They're paying for their own grading system that works for them. They're not paying for the system, for the farming practice, for anything like that. So if a farmer wants to scale his business up, he just has to give the abattoir more, more cattle. What we're trying to do is, is reward farmers for the system that they promote in their farmer we want to educate them and i'd say we i'm I'm not a farmer but we've got some founding farmers who are very very skilled in this area who are going to help these farmers change their system around improve their soil health improve their animal welfare improve their business because we're going to pay them a decent price for their for their meat and reconnect them with the food and you know get we've already had we've only got two farmers at the moment who are running this trial period for us but they've all come down to restaurants, brought their whole team down, tried the food, had a couple of beers. And it was just amazing to see that. And they'd never actually tried their own meat before. You know, most of these guys, it's like I said, it's just an asset that comes in and, and goes when it's hit maturity. And that's that. And that's it. Because that, you've answered my question, actually, which is why I was sort of interrupting, because it's almost like, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, nature knows best. And that system you described of the, of the cows fertilizing the soil, putting organic matter back in and then plowing it in with their feet is amazing. But it's also a slower process. And my question really was going to be, it sounds like you're willing to pay more for it and your customers are willing to pay more to know that that beef and that burger has come from somewhere that is local, but it's also grown in an environmentally friendly, let's call it regenerative farming way and getting almost getting the public to understand that not all burgers are made equal and if you go to an honest burger it's going to be different to a you know mcdonald's burger let's take an extreme and and that's uh, and are the public getting that now i think so i mean you, you if you look at any meat climate article in the paper it's almost always a picture of a burger um when they're talking about meat tax or the impact of meat on the environment so i think it's you know customers know that what they're about to face a lot of people just rightfully not rightfully but are understandably just burying their head in the sand you know i'm i'm motivated to know this more than most because i know that i'm part of the problem now and i don't want to be part of the problem i want to be part of the solution but even i found it really difficult at times to just know what's fact and what's fiction and you know a lot of it is gut and a lot of it's logic and a lot of it like you said is just we're just trying to do what mother nature's done for billions of years and i don't think you can argue with that and i think 
there is, you know, human beings are on this planet. We have drastically changed the outlook of this planet forever. We've messed the balance of things. We need to therefore try and rebalance these things. And, you know, for me, I see regenerative farming as a way to rebalance where you've got cattle who are incredibly well looked after by the farmer who genuinely cares for these animals. You know, I think a lot of activists can think farmers are somehow, you know, quite evil people. Something They're not at all. They're, they're genuinely caring for these animals. They're looking after them for, you know, two years, sometimes more. They're feeding them. They're caring for them. They're checking on their health. They're, you know, looking after them. And then the animal goes off and it has one bad day in its life, which is, you know, the end of the final day. But up to that, in the terms of what a, a, a natural system, I think that cow has had a pretty damn good existence and it's done its part for the planet, for the soil health, and it's provided incredibly nutritionally dense food for hundreds of people to enjoy. And I think that's an important angle here is cattle are a big source of nutrients and especially grass-fed and well managed cattle are really loaded with good nutrients i think a lot of red meat kind of bashing comes from firstly corn corn fed beef which is really high in um in trans fats and omega-6 fats is not so good for you and it's difficult when you look at red meat as a diet red meat is part you generally don't eat red meat with healthy things do you and that's obviously coming from a burger and chips um seller you know you eat, you eat red meat with fried products with rich sources as a big blowout meal so i think red meat does have a um negative connotation to it but you know a steak a sweet potato some broccoli and a you know tomato salad that's a damn good meal for you and you get some great nutritious and nutritious density from from well-reared beef so i think it's really interesting subject to look at and i think restaurants have a real calling now to show customers where their food comes from just like supermarkets do because it's too nameless no one gets to see where it comes from i think everyone would rather just see it in a packet or see it on a menu and not ask questions and i think those times are over now we've got to start asking questions and and i think that might push people to have a better more conscientious diet yeah just this sort of uh, idea i think knowing where it came from is the key thing because it's just the case of you know a mega long supply chain with animals that have been brought up on soy in a feedlot somewhere versus something that you know is grown down the road and grass-fed i think it's just incredible what you're doing around that whole agenda and would you say that sustainability was always there or do you think it's something that you've sort of had to get into or wanted to get into sort of in the in the sort of later on in the history of honest burgers yeah i think if i'm being completely honest with you bruce i probably didn't even know what the word sustainability meant when we set up honest burgers i was 24 years old it was, it was not um in my vocabulary at all i certainly didn't know the impact of beef or the impact of a big business could have on the planet at that time it's something that as i've matured and the business has grown it's started to hit me a lot harder and i've seen a lot i've seen the way the world has gone in terms of veganism and some of the messaging how it's kind of a bit blurry and could be quite confusing quite evocative so it kind of led me to think, right, if I'm going to be a business owner and I'm the kind of food specialist, I need to get in this and I need to learn what is actually the truth. And, you know, I say the truth kind of in inverted commas because it's the jury's out on a lot of these things, but I need to know more. So for me, that mission started. I, I thought, right, I've got to get into farming. I've got to learn more about farms. Um, we've, we've got such a great climate for farming in this country and we've been you know, pioneers in the space for, for hundreds of years. 
I went and had a, a few meetings with the NFU and I went to a few conferences and eventually met a farmer that genuinely inspired me. Like I really felt when I was listening to him, you know, these conferences and they're not normally that in- exciting, but this one was truly brilliant. And um, a guy called was this a great? Was this was this groundswell? No, this was just a small conference at um, the NFU at their head office uh, in London, and it was one of the, it was conference put on to they invited a lot of the Oxbridge um, students to come along and basically have a bit of a debate about climate change with some very clued up um, scientists who were incredibly intelligent and I was struggling to keep up with them to be honest with you but then James was a farmer from Shropshire who's a beef farmer he sat up in his tweed blazer and and said his piece and I was just like that's incredible like that that is the most logical sensical thing I've ever seen in my whole life I went in and then went up and you know had a chat with him and just said I think it's brilliant I, I'm from Honestburg is can can I come see your farm basically and went up to see him a couple of weeks later and we we got on really well and another mate of his another guy called James who's a consultant farmer we we sat down we had a chat they put on a terrible lunch for me <laughs> they're not they're definitely not chefs but um and then we uh we, we got on really well and, and now we've got three farmers a chap called Alistair who's another He's a sheep farmer and also does a lot of consultancy work. And they're turning into leaders of this movement. And they're our founding farmers. And as a result of a couple of years worth of work with them, we've now got two farmers that are supplying us with beef at the moment. It is an unannounced trial, so probably not great to be announcing it on a podcast. But it's an unannounced trial at the moment in three sites where we're just testing the ops, testing the process, testing the quality testing everything we can basically but we're in a, we've done it for eight weeks now and it's gone really well and we're looking to roll it out next year and, and get a bit more public with it amazing and so what does that what does success look like i mean would you be working with hundreds of farmers or are you trying to like limit the number of farmers so this is the beauty for us is right now we would be buying our beef and our current carcass utilization off something like 250 to 300 farms because we're, we're buying such a small amount of beef on a carcass what we're doing with which is that that's a that's a, not it's not insurmountable but it's difficult just like for mcdonald's who buy off you know twenty thousand farmers for them to convert them to a better agricultural system is going to take forever and or and it probably may never you know have a meaningful impact because it's it's a really serious undertaking so that was the first point we wanted to tackle is right how can we how can we buy more beef off these guys, give them more security on their system so they're not having to worry about, um, you know, carcass balance or anything like that, which farmers just don't deal with. So we were like, right, can we buy, how much meat from a cow can we put into a burger? Um, turns out quite a lot, actually. And we sell the things called roasting, which is like your premium steak cuts. We sell those on to a butchery partner and it's incredible quality uh, meat really is some of the best I've tasted when it's sort of dry aged and cooked properly. And that that way, we actually think to scale this up to 50, 60 restaurants, there's only going to be 15 to 20 farmers. So it actually becomes very doable. And we've got two farmers now who we're working with. We've got another two in the runnings. Um, A lot of people are interested to work with us now because, like I said, we're paying a good price for their beef, which is important because farming is not it's not a great business for a lot of people. I think the, the Clarkson's farm thing is absolutely brilliant, by the way. I thought it was so well done and showed a, a spotlight into how stressful farming is. And, you know, even for someone like Jeremy Clarkson, who's a multimillionaire, you see it's hard work and it's slim margins and 
it's so dependent on subsidies. Like we want to show that we can give these guys good price for their beef and can reconnect them to their supply chain. Because if we can sort out our food system, I genuinely think that we can sort out the, the mess we're in. Because um, I think. And what would you like? What would you like listeners to do differently to help you succeed with that? Do they? Do they need to do? behave act in a different way yeah i think we all do we need to we need to ask more questions and we know if you buy a sandwich that's got three species in it and it costs you two pound fifty you should ask yourself some questions like you know if you buy a pack of burgers that's you know three quid for four then that's totally cool you know that i'm not I'm, i know it's a very privileged thing to say you know you can spend you know good money on 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 good meat not all of us can but if you can and if you want to, then try, try harder, find people that are trying their best and who are working harder on their, their supply chain. There's some amazing butcheries in this country that are promoting and working with small independent farmers who are trying to do better. I think it's about time we celebrate those people instead of trying to villainize them. Um, because in my humble opinion, we need ruminants grazing in this country to affect health and soil. And, you know, if animal welfare is what you're after, then arable systems are better, but they're not perfect. And if we're looking at biodiversity, arable systems can be pretty damning compared to, a you know, a regenerative farmed herd of cattle. So it's, it's damn complicated, but I'd recommend trying to learn about a bit about it because we all need to do our bit if we're going to try and understand this this growing problem. Brilliant. And 2050, we're, we're meant to be um, carbon net zero in the UK, hopefully across the across the world, you'll be wiser, older. What advice would you give yourself looking back? Pat on the back or shit, we could have done this differently? I'm quite critical of myself, so I think I'll always be saying shit, you could have done more. <laughs> but I think that's a good place to be. Never want to sit there and pat yourself on the back because I think if you do that, you probably could have always tried a bit harder. I'm hopeful we can, um, we can be a bit of a spotlight and a bit of a, a voice for for change in this area because you know we're a relatively big business now and we've got a lot of customers and we can educate these guys and show them that you can eat good proper food from locally sourced passionate farmers who are trying to make a difference and a lot of it's about honesty you know and you've got a great name for the business for that you know and really having an honest honest look at yourself exactly we're calling it honest farming bruce so that's our uh perfect that's our brand you hear it you heard it here first on zero five oh yeah <laughs> podcasts or books um that you'd like to recommend to the listeners are you listening are you a little podcast listener or a book reader i am actually yeah i've listened to a few podcasts on on this and there's a few documentaries as well they're great and there's a, some brilliant books out there there's um it's a book by isabella tree called rewilding that i found really really insightful about biodiversity that's a really good one to understand like the importance of a, a natural system and just how clever um, and brilliant and incredible nature can be if you just let her do her thing. There's a book, I've completely forgotten the name now, by James Rebanks. My mind's gone completely blank. Uh, the Life of, Life of a Hill Farmer. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. A really emotional book. Um, yeah, it's great. But, but great as well. I'm, I think everyone's um, in the, who's read that. And there's some great documentaries out there on... Um, I think it's called Kiss the Earth is a good one. And Big Farm, Little Farm is a really good one on Netflix as well. Yeah, no, there's some great ones. There's a, there's a few farms on, um, I've done some podcasts. Bel Campo Farm did a really good podcast with, uh, what's his name? I can find it. Am I, uh, his name, sorry, I know we're wrapping up. Lex Friedman. Lex Friedman. Um, Bel Campo. 
Yeah. Excellent. Bel Campo podcast um, with Lex Friedman is a really good one. I can't remember her name, but she was, she was great and really summed up what they've been trying to do for many years now. So yeah, there's some great, great businesses that are all leading the way now. I think, I think they're going to be spotlighted in a good way. So just hope the movement gets stronger and stronger. Excellent. And finally, Tom, if you could put one thing in the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, what would it be? We're making a collection. One thing in a First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame. Ooh, I should have thought about this before, shouldn't I? An honest farmer. An honest farmer, yeah. <laughs> Get like some kind of cyborg of honest farmer that we could put in there and reproduce. We could go forth and spread the word. What about a I like a cyborg regenerative farmer? Maybe. What about just a really good bucket of fertile soil? Excellent. That's fantastic. A really good bucket of fertile soil with embedded carbon. Tom, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the show. I really like the bit of advice around if you pick up a sandwich and it's got three species in it, you should think about what, where, it, where it's come from and what you're about to eat. It's been brilliant having you on Zero Five O. Before we wrap up, can you just tell the listeners where they will find Honest Burgers uh, website, where your restaurants are? Yeah, sure. Um, we are we're a national chain, so we're mostly London, but we've got um, outposts all over Cambridge, Bristol, Reading, Liverpool, Manchester, Cardiff, Bath, and all around there. Not Bath, actually, as a, a slip. We will have one in Bath soon. <laughs> but um, and uh, yeah, our website is honestburgers.co.uk, and our social media handle is also honestburgers. And we recently just joined TikTok, so yeah, we're on all the all the platforms. And yeah, that's that's me. Brilliant. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Nice one. Cheers, Bruce. Thanks for having me. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.